Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. To get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. Well, we didn't get a Black Monday type crash following the Dow's 1,008 point plunge on Friday, but we did get a down day. In fact, at one point, the Dow was down better than 300 points before pairing those losses. It only closed down 130 points on Monday, but then today it dropped another 308 points, closing below Monday's low, completely negating any significance of the rally off the Monday low. In fact, closing below that low is a very ominous technical sign. The market continues to look weak. The Dow is down 1.5% on the first two days of the week. The S&P down even more, down 1.8%. The NASDAQ is down 2% in the first two days of this week. And the Russell 2000 having an even bigger decline, down 2.4%. Now, gold stocks did even worse. The GDX was down 3.3%. That's a new low for the year. Now, gold itself wasn't really down that much. Gold is down about 12 bucks, which is what, six bucks a day, maybe about 0.7%. I think it closed at about 17.25 an ounce, which is still about 50 bucks off its low for this move. So gold hasn't made a new low, but gold stocks are. Now, traditionally, gold stocks are the leaders. And so maybe new lows in gold stocks portend new lows in gold. 
But I still think there's still a good chance that gold has seen its lows. And I think gold stock investors are just being overly pessimistic on the prospects for a big drop in the price of gold that may never materialize. Now, the catalyst for today's decline, although I don't even know if the market needed a catalyst to decline, it may have done so anyway, but it was stronger than economic data that came out. And I don't even think the data that was reported is really evidencing a strong economy. One of the data points was consumer confidence. And everyone puts a lot of stock in consumer confidence because after all, the consumer is in charge driving the economic train with their spending. And so we need a confident consumer to go out and borrow and spend money and drive the economy. Of course, the consumer is not the engine, but the caboose. The economy isn't driven by consumption, but production. You can't consume what you don't produce. The hard part is making the stuff. The easy part is buying it. But the consumer confidence numbers, which were supposed to come in at 97.4, and that would have been a marginal improvement over the 95.7 from July. And that number actually was revised a bit lower to 95.3. But the August number came out well above expectations at 103.2. The consensus range was from 93 to plus 99, so above the upper end of the range. Now, why are consumers now so much more optimistic? Well, maybe cheaper gas prices have created some temporary optimism. Of course, those cheap gas prices, not that they're cheap, they're just less expensive than they were, but I don't expect that to last. Maybe you've got some people out there with student loans who are confident now that they're not going to have to repay them or not going to have to repay as much. So maybe that's boosted confidence. I don't know. There certainly has been a lot of talk that maybe we've seen the peak in inflation and the economy is not that weak. And so maybe consumers are buying some of that nonsense, but they're wrong. This is false confidence. And ultimately, consumers will come to realize that their confidence is misplaced. But I think it would be a mistake to look at this number and conclude that the economy is strong just because consumers are foolish enough to have more confidence that it's getting better when it simply means that they're going to be surprised when it gets worse instead. Again, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in what consumers think because I don't think they have a solid understanding of the underlying economic fundamentals and how quickly things can deteriorate nor do I put a lot of stock in investors who I also don't think have a solid understanding of the economic fundamentals. And so they're often wrong on their forecasts as well. But another data point that came out that a lot of people were talking about as really being a surprisingly strong number and really evidencing that the economy is a lot stronger than the bears believe and that it is in fact able to withstand these higher interest rates And it was the JOLTS number. This is the number that we get every month about the job openings. And the idea is that if you have a strong economy, well, there's a lot of jobs available. And that means that unemployed people have an easy time getting a job because there's a lot of employers out there looking for workers. Now, there was an expectation that the number of job openings was going to drop from what was originally reported as 10.698 million in June to 10.4 million in July. First of all, they revised up the June number to 11.04 million jobs. And then the July number came out even higher than that 
at 11.239 million. So well above even the upper end of estimates and doing the opposite of what analysts had expected. Instead of there being a decline in job openings, there was a surge. In fact, now we have a near record. There's almost two jobs available for every unemployed worker. And according to Wall Street, this shows that we have a really strong economy because we have all these jobs and these unemployed workers could just go take those jobs and everything would be fine. Except they're not taking those jobs and everything is not fine. Because if you look beneath the surface, the number of hires, people that actually got hired for these unfilled jobs, continues to drop. And in fact, hiring now is at the lowest level since August of 2021. Now, I know that you're looking at some comparisons going back to the reopening, and so companies were quick to hire. But the fact that hiring continues to shrink as job openings continue to grow, to me, that's not a sign of a strong labor market or a strong economy. To me, what that means is that employers have jobs available, but they can't find workers who have the skills to qualify for those jobs. So the jobs are just out there. Or alternatively, employers want to hire low-skilled workers, but they can't find low-skilled workers willing to take the jobs for pay that makes sense economically for the employer. Because maybe the only way you can get some people into the workforce is to pay them more than the productivity associated with their labor would deliver to the worker. So if employers can't hire workers because they're either not qualified for the jobs or not willing to take the jobs at a pay that makes sense, how is that a strong labor market? Just because there's all these available positions that people aren't qualified for or don't want doesn't mean anybody's going to get hired. And in fact, people aren't getting hired. And in fact, they're not quitting. The quits rate is now at the lowest level it's been since October of 2021. Now, why are fewer people quitting? Well, maybe they don't think there's another job that they're qualified for. So they're sticking with the job that they have. So there's a lot of noise in this number that suggests that it's not a strong labor market. It's a dysfunctional labor market that's at work. Look, it's very easy to advertise for a job. It's another thing to actually hire the person qualified for the job that's willing to do the job at a wage that makes sense for the employer. Look, I could decide that I want to post a job ad. Let's say I want to hire 20 ex-Victoria's Secret models who are still under the age of 30 who want to do yard work at my house wearing lingerie and they want to do the job at minimum wage. All right, that those are my job openings. Am I going to fill those job openings? How many applicants am I going to have? Probably none. Probably nobody who's qualified will do that work at the pay that I'm offering. So those jobs are never going to get filled. Does that mean we have a strong labor market because I'm looking for workers that I'm never going to get? Of course not. Now, my example is a little extreme, but just to make a point that it's one thing to advertise for a position. It's another thing to fill that position. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are in the market for highly trained, maybe computer programmers or engineers or designers, and they can't find them. We just don't have enough qualified workers. Is that a strong labor market when your labor is not qualified to do the work that people need? No, that is a weak labor market. If we had a strong labor market, our workers would be empowered with the type of skills that employers need. 
Instead, in this weak labor market, employers are looking for qualified workers and they can't find them. And also on the other side, maybe the work that isn't necessarily highly technical, just manual labor, maybe people just don't want to work up a sweat or get their hands dirty. Maybe there's a lot of jobs now that Americans simply don't want to have because they found something more lucrative. Now, what it is, I'm not sure. I don't know where all these people are getting their money if they're not working because the labor force continues to shrink. The number of people not in the labor force continues to grow That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of unfilled jobs because the people who would normally fill those jobs have decided they no longer want to work. Now, we've also had a big increase in the number of people who claim to be disabled. Maybe a lot of those people aren't disabled. They're just pretending to be disabled so they can be on disability. But it's also possible that we have more and more people working for cash. That's probably why they're not counted as being in the labor market because officially they're not. And so they're working under the table. They're not paying taxes. Maybe that's one of the reasons that the IRS wants more agents to go after these people in the underground economy. But if you're in the underground economy, then you're not in a real economy and you're not going to show up in these statistics. But the bottom line is I don't think this data means anything. We have had all of these unfilled jobs month after month after month. Everybody is pointing to the jolts numbers. This is a remarkable economy. Look at how great this economy is. There's two jobs for every unemployed worker. Yes, but if there really were two jobs for every unemployed worker, nobody would be unemployed. The reason there's so many jobs, yet so many people still unemployed, is because the people who are unemployed either don't want or don't qualify for those jobs. And so that's not a strong labor market. That's either a weak labor market or maybe a dysfunctional labor market. But to the extent that employers can't fill the job openings that they need with workers that can help produce the goods or provide the services that they're in business to produce or provide, then obviously that is going to compound the problem with a lack of supply and help exert even more upward pressure on prices. So in other words, the inflation problem is going to get worse. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And by the way, I was listening to an interview with Jeremy Siegel, 
over at the Wharton School, Professor Siegel was talking about inflation. And to his credit, yes, over the last couple of years, he was warning that the Fed was behind the curve, that the Fed was underestimating the inflation threat, that the Fed was moving too slowly, and that there was going to be an inflation problem. So at least Jeremy Siegel got that right. Not that many people in the mainstream got it right. But now that I finished giving him some credit, I need to take him to task for some of the stuff that he's getting wrong because he is assuring everybody that the Federal Reserve is not in the same type of position today that it was in 1980 when Paul Volcker took over. Because according to Jeremy Siegel, we had a lot of inflation for 10 years. We had easy money policy under Arthur Burns, and he accommodated a lot of stuff, guns and butter, deficit spending, Vietnam, going to the moon, war on poverty, all this stuff. And so we had 10 years of inflationary monetary policies. And so by the time Paul Volcker came along, he had a lot of damage to control and a lot of credibility to restore. And so that's one of the reasons that he had to be so aggressive and so tight in trying to win back the credibility that his predecessors has lost. And he says that Jerome Powell doesn't have nearly as tough a mission because according to Jeremy Siegel, we've only had this reckless monetary policy for a couple of years. We've had two years of being too easy. And so we don't have this long history of inflation. The inflation just started and therefore it's gonna be a lot easier for Powell to put this smaller inflation genie back in the bottle than it was for Jerome Powell to basically have to put the blue gin back in the bottle. Well, Jeremy Siegel is completely wrong. If he thinks that cheap money started two years ago, he's sadly mistaken. It started in earnest in 2008 with quantitative easing. It started when the Fed dropped interest rates to 0% in 2000. We have a long history of excessive monetary policy. In fact, the excessive monetary policies that we have had, going all the way back to Greenspan, but then Bernanke, Yellen, and now Powell, we have had much more inflationary monetary policies than we had under Arthur Burns. And the budget deficit that these guys and gal have monetized dwarf the budget deficits that were monetized during the 1970s. So to say that we don't have a long history of inflation, sure we do. It's just that over the past 10 years, or at least 10 years before the most recent year, we lied about inflation. Remember, we're not using the same CPI to measure prices that we used during the 1970s. If we did have that CPI, we would have had much higher inflation numbers for far more years than we now acknowledge But given the magnitude of the easy money, for Jeremy Siegel to say, hey, we haven't had easy money for more than two years, what does he think 0% interest rates were? What about QE1, QE2, QE3? It didn't start with QE4. So Jeremy Siegel is wrong right off the bat to claim that this is going to be a cakewalk because we've only been too easy for two years. We've been too easy for a dozen years. It was worse than the 1970s. And the other problem, which Jeremy Siegel completely glosses over, is how much more debt we have now, and therefore how much more difficult it is for the Federal Reserve to rein in inflation with tight money when we can't afford to pay the interest 
on that tight money the way we could in 1980. Also, Jerome Siegel doesn't remember that in 1980, America still ran trade deficits, not massive trade surpluses. In 1980, America was the world's largest creditor nation. The world owed us. We didn't owe them. Now it's the other way around. We're the world's biggest debtor nation. We owe more money than all the other debtor nations combined. So higher interest rates hurt us because we are in the paying end of that transaction, not on the receiving end the way we used to be. And of course, in 1980, at least the federal government was smart enough. I mean, it was dumb on a lot of other things, but it wasn't dumb on the maturity of the national debt. The national debt was all long term. The debt wasn't due for 30 years. Now it's in six-month or one-year T-bills, which means the debt is constantly maturing and needs to be rolled over, and it's going to be rolled over into a much higher interest rate environment than when it was originally borrowed. When Volcker raised interest rates up to 20%, it had virtually no effect on the existing national debt. It only affected the new borrowing that the government had with current budget deficits. But when Powell is raising interest rates now, it not only impacts the new borrowing, but all the old borrowing as all that debt matures in a much higher interest rate environment. So Jeremy Siegel completely misses this elephant in the room. And it's not just that elephant. There's a whole circus full of elephants because the entire economy is far more leveraged up today than it was in 1980 because we've had an orgy of cheap money. Interest rates have been so low for so long, we have built a bubble far greater than any bubble ever experienced. In fact, look at the bubble that popped in 2008 that led to the financial crisis. That was a credit bubble. It popped because people borrowed more money than they can afford to repay. Well, we have a much bigger credit bubble now And this one is going to pop and it's going to lead to an even greater financial crisis. You know, the main reason that the Federal Reserve isn't afraid of another financial crisis is because they still don't understand the last one. They still don't recognize the fact that they caused the last one. And they also had no idea that it was coming. They were completely blindsided by the last financial crisis. And they're going to be even more blindsided by this one. But part of the problem is the people at the Fed, including Jerome Powell, still believe that the policies that the Fed pursued following the 2008 financial crisis worked. They don't understand. They didn't work at all. They were an abysmal failure. They just don't understand that. See, the policies didn't solve any of the underlying economic problems. In fact, the policies made all of the underlying economic problems worse. And we're dealing with that now. What the Fed achieved with 0% interest rates and QE was blowing up an even bigger bubble so that we can kick the can down the road and delay the consequences of that crisis. Well, we've now caught up to that can and we're out of road and the can is far too big to kick. We now have to deal with it and it's impossible. And the Fed doesn't understand that reality. It thinks that its policies worked in 2008. And so it thinks the policies that it's pursuing now are going to work. None of their policies work because the people at the Federal Reserve are completely clueless and have no idea what they're doing. And in the event that some of the people on the FOMC actually know what they're doing, either they don't care or they're not honest enough to admit it because the politics involved in being honest are too difficult for anybody to deal with. So all they can do is bury their head in the sand and hope that they can postpone the complete collapse until a later date when they're no longer in office and therefore no longer there to take the blame.
Don't you just love that sound? That is the sound of another sale on Shopify. Shopify is more than just a store. It helps you connect with your customers, drive your sales, and manage your day-to-day. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. And it's all customized for you with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and gives you the tools to manage and drive your sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. The best part is how easy Shopify makes it for everybody to successfully run their own small business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience required. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day to day. Gain the knowledge and confidence that comes with having the resources that you need to succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. But if economic professors don't understand inflation, how do you expect reporters to understand it? For example, last week I happened to be in my car and I was listening on XM to CNBC and Becky Quick, who is one of the anchors on that network, was talking to Steve Leisman, who was their senior economics reporter, and they were talking about the inflation problem and they were kind of attributing it to a lack of supply, as if the only problem was that we don't have enough stuff. That's always the problem. That's the problem with economics. How do you satisfy unlimited desires with limited resources? There's never enough stuff until you make it. So that's always the problem that capitalism solves. But to say, hey, the only reason we have all this inflation is because we don't have enough stuff. No, we have too much money. That is the problem because we never have enough stuff. We need free market capitalism. We need savings and investment to produce the stuff. But then Becky Quick made a comment that I couldn't let go. She said, that's the problem with this economic boom. We have so much demand, everybody wants to buy things, but there's not enough stuff to buy. And of course, when I heard that, I know she doesn't know what she's talking about. She believes the nonsense coming out of the White House and the media that we have this booming economy. But the only thing that was booming was the printing press. If you run off a bunch of money and send it to people, well, sure, they're going to run to the stores and try to buy stuff. But there's nothing to buy because nothing has been produced. You don't create an economic boom by creating money. You create inflation, which is exactly what we have. So it's not the boom that's causing the inflation. It's the inflation that's causing the inflation. And the inflation is actually covering up an economic bust But to Becky Quick, it looks like an economic boom. And so what I did when I got home is I tweeted out a message at Becky Quick and I said, this raises denial to a new level because most people are simply trying to claim that we're not in a recession. Even though we clearly are, they're dismissing the negative GDP and they're saying we're not in a recession. Well, Becky Quick was raising the ante a bit. She was taking the absurdity to a whole new level Not only was she denying that we were in a recession, but she was claiming we were experiencing an economic boom. 
And so I pointed this out to her on Twitter, and then right away she immediately denies that she said it. She said, I never said that. You must have been listening to somebody else. I never would have said there was an economic boom, and I knew I heard it. So I immediately went and had somebody take a look, and sure enough, I found the clip, and I posted it on Twitter. In the meantime, she had three tweets denying that she said it, demanding an apology from me that she said it. And then as soon as I posted a clip of her saying exactly what I tweeted, she said, she went silent. Not a peep out of her on Twitter. And she's yet to acknowledge the fact that I was right in what I tweeted. And I'm the one that needs an apology. Not that I care, but I thought she was genuine in her misunderstanding. And this is typical of the general public in thinking that a booming economy is people spending money. No, a booming economy is people making stuff. That's an economic boom when you have investment that leads to productivity. Booming economies produce a lot of stuff. And when you have a lot of stuff, prices come down. It's weak economies, it's busted economies that have a lot of inflation. They don't produce a lot of stuff, but they print a lot of money. And so everybody has money to spend, but nobody's making stuff to buy. But the award for the most ridiculous inflation comment doesn't go to Jeremy Siegel. It doesn't go to Becky Quick. It actually goes to President Biden. And every member of the Biden administration who got this memo and is now regurgitating the same talking point with respect to inflation and student loans. Because the president is being asked, hey, you know, if your administration is really concerned about inflation, why are you forgiving student loans? Isn't that going to lead to more demand, more spending, more inflation? And not only do they dismiss this by referring to some group of economists who have somehow concluded that forgiving student loans is not inflationary, but in the same breath, These Biden administration spokesmen are all saying that, wait a minute, Joe Biden is fighting inflation because Joe Biden is allowing the moratorium on student loan repayments to expire at the end of the year. And so because of Joe Biden, all of these former students who have a lot of loans who have not been making any payments on those loans For the last couple of years, thanks to the COVID-based moratorium, all of these students are, thanks to Biden somehow, going to start repaying those loans in January of next year. And so that is going to take demand out of the economy. And so Biden is helping to fight inflation by allowing this moratorium to lapse. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, that's a new kind of chutzpah on the part of the Biden administration because that moratorium on student loan repayments would have expired a long time ago, but for Joe Biden. Joe Biden keeps extending that moratorium. So people aren't making payments on their student loans because why make payments? Because you're not accumulating any interest or late payments during the delay. So money that you repay in the future is less valuable than money you repay in the present. So people aren't fools. If they can have an interest-free loan, they're going to take it. 
and people are taking that money and they're just spending it on other things. It's not like they're saving it up so they can make their loan payments when they resume. There's no point in doing that. They're just going to have the same loan payments that they would have had before, except they're going to make the payments later interest-free. But for Biden to say, hey, look, we're fighting inflation because we're going to make sure that borrowers start repaying January of next year, he just extended it again. Part of Biden's announcement on the fact that we're going to forgive more student loans, he also announced another extension on the moratorium. So at the same time, the president is extending the moratorium and allowing debtors a few more months of not having to make payments on their student loans. He's now claiming that the fact that he's planning on letting it lapse in January when it would have lapsed on its own much sooner, but the fact that he's eventually going to let it lapse, he's now claiming credit for doing that and saying, you see, I'm fighting inflation because I am going to let this moratorium lapse. Well, you know what? He may not. Who knows what's going to happen come December? Maybe he's going to extend it again. But how do you take credit when you've done the opposite of what you're taking credit for? Because of Joe Biden, people with student loans are not going to be making their loan payments in October or November or December, they're going to wait to January. And so if making loan payments helps fight inflation, then why did Biden extend the moratorium and allow people to continue not making loan payments if that's going to fuel inflation? So they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They come up with this ridiculous talking point and they all read from that same playbook and the media gives them no pushback. I have yet to hear a single reporter who was interviewing somebody from the Biden administration making this asinine claim hold that person accountable for saying something so blatantly ridiculous. But now that I'm back on the topic of student loans, I've got to acknowledge a mistake that I made on my last podcast when I was describing the circumstances surrounding the income-based repayments and the fact that the Biden administration had changed it so that people could now qualify for income-based repayments and under the terms pay just 5% of their disposable incomes for 10 years and then have the remaining principal forgiven. I was under the false impression that there was no cap on the amount of the loan that would be forgiven. So I use an example where somebody maxed out on their graduate loans, somebody borrowing 138500 and I thought that after 10 years, whatever was left unpaid would be forgiven, and I was wrong because it turns out that only if you owe 12000 or less will the amount be forgiven. So if you owe 11900 after 10 years of paying 5% of your disposable income, then you'd have that 11,900 forgiven. But if you had 20,000 or 50,000, then none of it would be forgiven and you'd have to keep making those small payments indefinitely. And so since that's the case, it's not nearly as lucrative for the borrower as I originally believed, but it's still a huge mistake with an incredible moral hazard. In addition to that large mistake, I made a smaller mistake also on the percentage that your income needs to exceed the federal poverty level. I said it was 250%, which was an increase from 150%. Instead, the increase was to 225%. But that's not nearly as significant a difference as what I missed on the amount of debt that would be forgiven. But even looking at the examples 
under this strategy. Let's say somebody were to borrow the maximum of 138,500 to get a master's degree in education and then they got a job as a teacher. And let's assume they worked for 40 years as a teacher, paying off their student loans. If the average income over that 40 year period was $100,000 a year and they had to pay 5% of their income that was subject to this requirement, which is your adjusted gross income minus that poverty rate. Let's say somebody has 100,000 in income, maybe they have 90,000 in AGI, and if you subtract 30,000, that's $60,000 that is going to be eligible. They pay 5% of 60,000, that's $3,000 a year. Well, even if you work for 40 years, assuming you graduate from college at age 25, and then you work as a teacher until you're 65, and then you retire, after 40 years of working, paying an average of 3,000 a year. Now, I'm assuming in the earlier years, they earned less than 100,000. They earned more than 100,000 in the later years, and that's how it kind of averaged out at 100,000 a year. Of course, I'm also assuming that the federal poverty rate stays the same, which obviously it won't. So these numbers are actually bigger than they really will end up being. But just assuming, just to keep it simple, that the poverty rate stays the same, which it won't, over 40 years, $120,000 will have been repaid. Well, $138,500 was borrowed, even 40 years of making your 5% payment, you don't even pay off all of the principal, let alone the interest. Because clearly, over a 40-year time horizon, that $138,500 loan, when you're making just $3,000 a year in principal payments, is going to accumulate an enormous amount of interest. So the amount that's actually going to be owed 40 years into the future is going to be maybe a half a million. Who knows what's left? But it's not going to matter because in 40 years, the individual is going to retire and then their income is going to plunge and their payments that they have going forward are going to be tiny. And so it's not going to matter that the loan isn't forgiven because they're never really going to have to pay it back. And of course, 40 years worth of inflation is going to wipe it out anyway. And one other point too that I think is significant is that if you borrow all of this money to go to college and you have the debt, if something happens to you, if you get an accident, if you happen to die, the debt is gone. If you have any children, they're not gonna inherit your debt. Even if you have a spouse, your spouse doesn't owe your debt. The debt dies with you. That's another reason why you shouldn't pay for college because in the unfortunate event that you die after you graduate college, you don't have to pay the money back. It's a form of insurance. Right? It's like a life insurance payoff, except the payoff isn't that you get a death benefit. The payoff is that you have your student loans forgiven. And so that is a benefit to your heirs because now they don't have to pay them back. It's a benefit to your spouse. And they get to keep the money that you otherwise would have used to pay for college. Let's say somebody has $100,000 that they could use to pay for college, but they don't. They keep it, they invest it, they put it in the bank, they graduate college, and then they get hit by a bus and they die. Well, all the money they borrowed, the 100000 they borrowed, it's gone. Yet their spouse or their children get to inherit that $100,000. But instead, if the person spent that $100,000 on a degree and then died, well, his family inherits nothing. So it's just another reason estate planning 
why nobody should pay for college when they can take out a government loan. And of course, in the example that I just mentioned, even though you're making loan payments for 40 years, and even though your loan is never forgiven, it's much better to make $3,000 a year payments for 40 years that only total to $120,000 than actually spending $138,500 right now to buy your graduate degree. Why buy it when you can get it so much cheaper by borrowing? Again, what I got right in my last podcast was the idea that the reason that people pay for college and don't borrow the money is because if you pay now, it's cheaper because you don't have to deal with the interest later. Well, the way the government has now rigged the system, if you don't pay now, if you pay later, you end up paying a lot less and you pay it a lot later. So it's a slam dunk. There is a huge incentive and moral hazard for everybody to now borrow money and for nobody to pay. And so that means the student debt bubble ends up being much bigger than anybody thinks because the government has now incentivized people who otherwise would have paid for college to borrow. So we have so much more debt, which means so much more debt ends up being forgiven, which means the price tag on this thing, even though it's already in the hundreds of billions, at the end of the day is probably in the trillions. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about another ridiculous government program proving that the federal government doesn't have a monopoly on stupidity when it comes to government programs. I read an article about something that's going to be on the ballot in Los Angeles. So I guess the politicians weren't able to pass it on their own. They have to put it up to a vote. And maybe the people in Los Angeles are just dumb enough to vote for this thing. And so here is the brainchild of these geniuses. I guess it occurred to some people that, hey, there are 20,000 vacant hotel rooms in Los Angeles every night. And we have 60,000 homeless people in Los Angeles with no place to sleep. Wait a minute. We've got all these homeless people with no place to sleep. And we've got all these beds with nobody sleeping in them. Eureka, problem solved. I'm a genius. We can kill two birds with one stone. We can solve the problem of people with no place to sleep and empty beds with nobody sleeping in them. Why don't we just put all these homeless people up in a hotel? And that's what these geniuses have decided to do. They want to require every hotel in Los Angeles. From the most expensive five-star hotels to the Motel 6s, all of those hotels have to tell the city of Los Angeles, I think it's by 1 p.m., an inventory of all their hotel rooms that haven't been rented. And they have to make those hotel rooms available to homeless people who are going to pay with vouchers. Now, supposedly, the hotels are going to get the fair market rent for those vouchers. Now, I don't even see how that's possible because if there really are 20,000 vacant hotel rooms every night. That's $4 million per day. That's about $1.5 billion per year. I don't know how Angelinos are going to cough up another $1.5 billion in taxes to cover the cost of these vouchers. But if it actually happens, it's going to end up costing a lot more than that because a lot of the paying customers of these fancy hotels are not going to want to check in. When they realize that A lot of the people sharing the same elevator with them, hanging out in the lobby, 
are homeless people, many of whom might have mental problems, I think a lot of people are not going to want to check in to these expensive Los Angeles hotels. I mean, this is going to be a boon for neighboring cities like Beverly Hills that are going to get a lot of people staying in those hotels who don't want to share a hotel room with a bunch of homeless people. So there's going to be a lot more than 20,000 empty rooms in these Los Angeles hotels. There's going to be a lot more empty rooms because the paying customers aren't going to check in which means more of the 60,000 homeless people are going to be able to get vouchers. And so it's going to cost the city a lot more to put all these homeless people up in these five-star hotels. Now, of course, this is going to be bad for the hotels if they can even stay in business because even if the city pays for the cost of these rooms, are they actually going to make money? Because are the tenants going to spend any money in the hotels? I mean, they're certainly not going to be spending money in the gift shops. I mean, maybe they'll be stealing stuff from the gift shops. They're not going to be ordering room service unless, of course, room service is going to be included with the vouchers. Is Los Angeles going to feed as well as house all these homeless people in these five-star hotels? But I think these guests are not going to be spending a lot of money if they have a voucher. If anything, they could be doing a lot of damage. Maybe they're going to have higher insurance rates. They're going to have to clean up the mess that a lot of these homeless people end up making in these hotels. And of course, they probably still have to provide the maid service. They have to clean up the hotels. I'm sure the homeless people aren't going to tip the cleaning staff at all. So they're going to be doing all this work and no one's going to be tipping them. And, you know, eventually nobody is going to want to stay in these LA hotels. It's going to all be homeless people. In fact, homeless people from all over the country are going to want to hightail it to Los Angeles so they can get the vouchers and stay for free in a hotel. So Los Angeles is going to have a lot more than 60,000 homeless people. They could have homeless people from all over the country which might be a benefit for the surrounding communities when all the homeless people pack up and head to Los Angeles. You know, there's part of me that actually wants to see these idiots actually pass this. I mean, I would feel bad for the owners of hotels who are now having their private property destroyed by government, but it really would be interesting to watch the liberals do this to their own city, to actually pass this and have to deal with the consequences and have to be so embarrassed as to actually repeal the regulation. How heartless are they going to look when they first give away something? They virtue signal to the world how much they care about the homeless because they're willing to put them up in hotels. And then when they actually get the price tag and they see how much their generosity actually costs, all of a sudden they're not going to be as charitable. I'd really like to see them make this bed and then toss and turn as they try to lie in it and ultimately have to get out.